As always, it is a great privilege and an honor to have this opportunity to worship with you and to preach, you, pre to, to, preach to you from, from the Word of God. Well, this morning we are continuing in our consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in chapter 2 of Mark for the past three weeks, and this morning we will be concluding chapter 2 and moving into chapter 3. Our text today will be Mark 2, beginning in verse 23 and ending with Mark 3, verse 6. And so I do invite you to turn with me to this text in your own copy of the Scripture. And if you don't have a copy of the Scripture, you should be able to find a pew Bible in a chair near you. The title of our sermon this morning is, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, this is the Word of God, and thus it carries with it the very authority of God Himself. Therefore, let us hear it and obey it as such. Chapter 2, beginning in verse number 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked, at, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. With us, the reading of God's holy word and his people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider his word this morning. Our most gracious and holy God, as we have been reminded already this morning, you are our fortress and our ever-present help and strength. Lord, we confess that right now we are in need of your help. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to Behold wonderful things from your word as it is preached. Lord, would you give us illumination so that we might see the goodness of your law? And would you give us insight to see and to understand what is truly required in your law? And most importantly, I do pray that we would be granted the grace of seeing Christ this morning as the sovereign Lord over all creation and yet the compassionate Savior of sinners. And Father, I do pray that we would see that the Lord Jesus Christ is a kind and gentle Lord, one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, and that each and every person in this room this morning would come to him and thus find rest for their souls. And it is in Christ's name that I do pray. Amen. 
Well, as we begin our exposition this morning, it would do us well to first remind ourselves of the context of our passage. We are still in the early part of Jesus' public ministry. He has recently moved to Capernaum, which was a little fishing town on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And he has been engaging in a preaching and healing ministry throughout the larger region of Galilee. And in addition to this, he has been selecting his disciples that will later serve as the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though it is somewhat subtle at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is laying the foundations for the new covenant church. Further, we have noted over the past few weeks that Jesus' ministry has been very popular among the common people in the region of Galilee. In Mark 2, 2, we read, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room. In Mark 2, 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. In Mark 2, 15, For there were many who followed him. Now, although Jesus has been very popular with the masses to this point, he has not been so popular with the religious elite of Judaism, particularly with the group known as the Pharisees. In fact, what we've seen over the past several weeks is that every time Jesus is doing something, the Pharisees always seem to, be, to, to show up so that they can oppose Jesus and his disciples. In fact, you will, you will notice as you read Mark 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way through Mark 3, verse 6, is that in these verses there is a cohesive unit that can be divided into five passages. And each of these passages record for us an episode of Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees. In Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus heals a paralytic and is accused of blasphemy by the Pharisees. In Mark 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus calls Levi and then sits to eat with tax collectors and sinners and is opposed by the Pharisees. In Mark 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus answers a question about fasting, and that question, as we saw last week, was a result of opposition from the Pharisees. And then in our passages today, Mark 2, verses 23 through 28, Jesus is confronted about his disciples plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And then in Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, the Pharisees are angry with Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. And so every passage that we've dealt with over the past three weeks and our passages today all come within this larger context of Jesus facing repeated opposition from the Pharisees. And we've noted a few things about this opposition over the past few weeks. First, we've noted that this opposition is expected, although the source of the opposition is somewhat unexpected. Secondly, we've noticed that this opposition, each and every time, is focused on the law of God. And thirdly, we've noticed that this opposition is increasing in its intensity. So let's take a couple of minutes to, re to quickly review each of these. First, this opposition is expected, as we have noted, based on what we read in Mark 1, verse 15, which states, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, with that statement in mind, I want to engage in an exercise of syllogistic thought that will show us what we should expect that, that, we should expect that Jesus will face opposition during his public ministry. First, it says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, why is the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king is present. And very clearly, the reference here is to the reality that Jesus is the king that is present. 
Now it says that the, king, that the kingdom of the king is the kingdom of God. Which means that the only conclusion that we can come to is that King Jesus is God. And if Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and the kingdom of the kingdom is God, then we make the conclusion that Jesus is God. Further, we read in the Gospel of John chapter 1 that Jesus is called the light of the world. And then in 1 John chapter 1, we read that God is light. And so if Jesus is light and God is light, then we can, can, con we can conclude that Jesus is God. So hopefully you can see how we're working through these syllogisms here. So moving forward, if this kingdom is the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom is called light, we can rightly conclude that this kingdom is the kingdom of light. And so you have the kingdom of light being ushered in by King Jesus. Now, this is important because over and over again in the scripture, we see that those who are opposed to God and to his Christ are said to be members of the kingdom of darkness. And thus, we should expect that the kingdom of darkness and its servants are going to be fiercely opposed to the kingdom of light. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And this is what we have seen from the Pharisees. In fact, we have noted on several occasions the similarities between the way that the Pharisees have opposed Jesus and the way that the prince of darkness himself opposes God and his people. In fact, Jesus explicitly says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil, because you do the very things that your father does. And so opposition is to be expected. And we have seen that this opposition continues into our passages today. But what is unexpected is the fact that it is the Pharisees of all people that would be those who opposed Christ. These were men that would have had the oracles of God. They were supposed to be doctors of the law, experts in the word of God, the very ones who searched the scriptures for salvation. And yet, they were the very ones who rejected the Savior. You would have expected the Gentiles who lived in darkness to oppose the light. And yes, many Gentiles absolutely did oppose the light. But it was the Pharisees who seemed to, to lead the charge in this opposition. And that is a stark warning for us this morning. Many of you, if not all of you, have grown up in a land that has been saturated by the Word of God. You've grown up in a land where there are churches on nearly every corner. No doubt some of these are false churches, but many are true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you have grown up with Christian parents or Christian grandparents. And many of you have grown up surrounded by the covenant community of God's people. And yet none of those advantages are sufficient to save you. None of that is able to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is only through personal union with Christ by faith that you can be translated from, the dark, from darkness into his marvelous light. You must personally be one who believes in, loves, and obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, be thankful for all the advantages that you have, that you've had according to God's kind providence. But as the old hymn says, dare not trust the sweetest frame. Dare not trust any external advantages that you may have but wholly lean on Jesus' name.
Well, this leads us to the second thing that we've noticed in recent weeks about this opposition that the Lord has faced. And that is that the opposition from the Pharisees has been focused on the law. We might say that the material cause for this opposition has been disputes over the law. Whereas the the formal cause being that these men hated the Lord. The Pharisees have accused Jesus, who is the lawgiver and the lawkeeper, of being a lawbreaker. They have accused him of the following sins. Blasphemy, sitting with tax collectors and sinners, thus making himself unclean in their eyes, and failing to fast according to their traditions. And this will be the focus of their opposition in our text today as well as they will focus in on law surrounding the Sabbath day. And their accusation will be that Jesus and his disciples are Sabbath breakers. And lastly, as we have been seeing this opposition against Jesus over the past few weeks, we have seen that this opposition has been increasing in intensity. It began in verse 6 of Mark 2, as the Pharisees were silently questioning in their hearts against Jesus. And then in verse 16, the Pharisees opposed Jesus not directly to his face, but rather they approached his disciples to show their disapproval. And then in verse 18, it seems as though the Pharisees stir up a crowd to come and oppose Jesus to his face. So their opposition is increasing in intensity. And we will see that at the beginning of today's passage, the Pharisees have now grown bold enough to oppose Jesus face to face as we read in verse 24. And then by the end of the passage in Mark 3, verse 6, their opposition against him has reached the point that they are beginning their plans, their plot, to murder the Lord. So we see it begins with them silently questioning in their hearts, and then it increases intensity all the way to the point that they're making plans to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have seen that this entire unit of Scripture from Mark 2, verse 1 to Mark 3, verse 6 is dominated by this theme of opposition against Jesus. But we've also seen in this unit of scripture that as Jesus is opposed, he offers a response to each episode of opposition. I love the line in the hymn that we just sang that shows us something of our Lord who responds to this opposition. It says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Dear ones, as we see our Lord responding to opposition, may it cause our hearts to be comforted in the reality that our king is the victorious king. He has always overcome opposition. He is the right man, the man of God's own choosing. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he is the captain of our salvation. And so if you are trusting in him and him alone, may your hearts be encouraged this morning. But if you are not a follower of the Lord, may you see that King Jesus is the one who is mighty in battle. And may you confess and believe that this Jesus is able to save even the worst of sinners. And may you run to him this morning and cling to him by faith. And so Jesus responds to opposition, and as we have seen over the last three weeks, a few commonalities, we, we've seen over the past few weeks a few commonalities in the responses of Jesus to this opposition. 
In each of his responses, he does the following. First, he reveals his divinity. Each time Jesus is opposed in this unit of Mark's gospel, we see him respond by declaring in one way or another that he is the Son of God. In the account of the healing of the paralytic, Jesus declares that he is the Son of Man and that he has authority to, to do only what God can do, which is to forgive sin. Secondly, in the passage where Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners, he declares that he is the great physician who has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then last week in the passage concerning fasting, Jesus declared that he is the bridegroom prophesied in Isaiah. And we have seen the same pattern in Jesus' response in our passage this morning, where he has declared that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Secondly, each time Jesus responds to this opposition from the Pharisees, he makes sure to reiterate his mission. And what is the mission of the Lord? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Each time that Jesus is opposed, he strikes that note again. I have come to save sinners. And truly that makes this opposition all the more wicked. Apart from the grace of God, people oppose and reject the only hope of their salvation. Isaac Watts in the hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, picks up on this in the line of that hymn that says, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Don't you understand that those who reject Christ reject the only Savior of mankind? And thus to reject the only Savior is the height of insanity. And so if you are here this morning and you've never come to Christ, why? You don't have to die in your sins. Christ has come so that sinners may be saved. Repent of your sins, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and live. Listen to the Savior of sinners throughout Mark chapter 2. In the account of the healing of the paralytic in verse 10, Jesus says, But that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In the passage where Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners in verse 17, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And last week we saw that Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to rejoice over his redeemed bride. And further, we saw Jesus for the first time in the Gospel of Mark give a subtle prophecy that the way in which he is going to accomplish the salvation of his people is that he must be taken away, which is referring to the fact that he will, at the appointed time, suffer and bleed and die on a Roman cross under the wrath of God so that sinners may be saved. And as we saw last week, this first coming of the Lord is an occasion to rejoice if you are a sinner because there is hope for you in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, each time that Jesus responds to opposition from the Pharisees, he rebukes and corrects their, their wicked misunderstanding and misapplication of God's law. The Pharisees repeatedly tried to oppose Jesus on the basis that he and his disciples were breaking the law. And each time Jesus says, in effect, 
No. You Pharisees don't understand the law of which you claim to be experts of. And at the heart of their misunderstanding of the law, as we saw last week, was that they thought that it was possible for them to be justified through keeping the law. Which is why Jesus told them, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So with this context in our minds, let us dive into these last two episodes of opposition that we see in this unit of Scripture. Now, I felt like it was necessary to review that context because if we're not careful, we can, we can rush into these two passages that deal with the topic of the Sabbath. And, and in doing so, we can, uh, we can misunderstand what Jesus, is, what Jesus is teaching about the Sabbath. We must be careful not to just rush into these passages and use them as a, as a topical launching point to talk about the Sabbath because these passages come in this larger context that we've just spoken of. So let's take both of our passage, passages and let's deal with them separately. First, let's go verse by verse through Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Verse 23 reads, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So here we have the immediate context of this passage. Jesus and his disciples are walking on the Sabbath day, which at that time would have been the seventh day of the week. It would have been a Saturday. And I think we can probably presume that they were walking towards a synagogue. And as they were walking, the disciples are hungry. And because they are walking through fields of grain, they help themselves to some heads of grain. In layman's terms, what was likely going on is this. The disciples were on their way to public worship, they got hungry, and they ate a snack. And I'm sure everybody in this room has done that exact same thing. Now, it is important to note here that what the disciples were doing was lawful. Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 states the following, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, it was okay if you were hungry to get a snack out of your neighbor's field. But you were not permitted to go and harvest their crop and make a profit off their crop. That would be breaking the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Neither were the disciples breaking the Sabbath. In Exodus 34 verse 21, it states, Six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time, you shall rest. What that commandment is clearly stating is that it was prohibited to use the Sabbath day as just another day of normal commerce. During plowing time, you plow six days, and on the seventh day, you rest. During harvest time, you harvest or reap six days, but on the seventh day, you rest. You don't harvest. You don't reap. The disciples were not harvesting. They were simply eating a snack because they were hungry. But then we move into verse 20, 24. And of course, the Pharisees don't see it that way. Verse 24 reads, Look. And the word look here is a strong word. It doesn't mean that they, were just casual, that they just casually said look. It means that they were astonished at what they were seeing. They were disgusted at what they were seeing. And so they say, Look. Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? 
For the first time, we see the Pharisees directly confronting Jesus verbally. Their opposition to Jesus has just taken another step up in intensity. And so clearly the Pharisees believed that the actions of the disciples was a breaking of the Sabbath and that it was Jesus' fault for not instructing them better. Now, should we expect that the motivation behind this question from the Pharisees was that they were truly concerned for the well-being of these disciples and for the teaching ministry of Jesus? For example, if we see someone who is in sin someone who is committing sin, is it appropriate for us to question that person in love concerning their sin? Or, if we see someone that is teaching that which is wrong, should we confront that person about the content of their teaching? Well, the answer there is, of course, yes, we should. Love demands that we call out sin. But I would add a word of caution here for us. We need to be sure that what the person is engaging in is actually sinful according to God and not according solely to your conscience. There is a difference there. A difference that we need to understand very clearly, especially as brothers and sisters in Christ. Our conscience is to be held captive to the word of God only and not to the opinions, even well-meaning opinions, of other men and women. But as we consider this question from the Pharisees, their track record indicates that their motivation behind this question was not love. It was not true concern for the disciples or true concern for Jesus. But rather it was an attempt by them to use their misguided interpretation of the law of God as a weapon to condemn and thus discredit Jesus as one who was worthy to be followed. Their goal was to put an end to the public ministry of this man named Jesus. And they were hoping that they could have some ammunition which they could use to convince any would-be followers of Christ to reconsider. The Pharisees were engaged in a classic smear campaign. And a further word of caution for us here, especially as those who are in the Reformed tradition. We ought to call out false teachers and false practices. But let's be careful who we label as false teachers And let's be careful what we label as false practice. Before we do something like that, we need to make sure that we are right according to the word of God and not according to our misguided misinterpretations of the word of God. So much damage is done when we have a zeal that is not according to knowledge. And so may we be mindful of that. Let's turn our attention now to Jesus' response to this question in verses 25 through 28. We can divide Jesus' response into two parts. The first part being verses 25 and 26, and the second part being verses 27 and 28. Let's read once again the first part of our Lord's response. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. The first thing we notice here is this. As is common with Jesus, 
He does not allow the Pharisees to dictate how the conversation will go. He immediately answers their question with a question of his own. And he does so in a way that would have deliberately angered the Pharisees. He says, have you never read? That would have really bothered these men. Because they prided themselves on their knowledge of the word. Now Jesus could have appealed to Deuteronomy 23 or Exodus 34 as we have already looked at this morning. And using those passages, he could, have, he could have defended the actions of his disciples. But instead, Jesus has something else in mind in his approach to the Pharisees. Because ultimately, the goal in Jesus' response is not just to defend the actions of his disciples, but to make sure that the Pharisees understood who they were talking to. To do this, Jesus appeals to a story that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. In this story, David, who at the time was fleeing from Saul, came to the house of God in a place called Nob, which would have been just outside of Jerusalem. This place was known as the city of priests. And he entered and he came, came in and he spoke to Ahimelech, who was the high priest at the time. And he told Ahimelech that he and his men were hungry and in need of bread or whatever they had on hand in the house. Now, a little note about this. In 1 Samuel, we see that David spoke to Ahimelech, who was the high priest. But in Mark 2, when Jesus references this story, he states that this event happened during the time of Abiathar, the high priest. Well, how do we explain this? Is this a mistake in the scriptures? Well, as you read ahead in 1 Samuel, you will see that Saul is, that Saul is so angered by, by Ahimelech giving aid to David and his men that as a result of this, Saul has Ahimelech and all the priests in Nob killed. But Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, was able to escape. And Abiathar flees to David and finds safety with David. And later, Abiathar would become the high priest. And so when Jesus says that this event happened during the time of Abiathar, the high priest, he is not mistaken. Abiathar was certainly alive during this event. So back to the story in 1 Samuel. Ahimelech tells David that there is no common bread available, but only the holy bread, also known as the bread of the presence or sometimes known as the showbread. Now, the bread of the presence was special bread that consisted of 12 loaves that were placed on a table in the holy place. And these 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And each Sabbath day, the old bread was to be exchanged for fresh loaves, and the old loaves were to be eaten by the priest, but it was not lawful for anyone else to eat the old loaves. Leviticus 24.9 says very plainly that this bread was for the priest. So although Ahimelech and David are aware of this law, the decision is made for David to take the bread of the presence and bring it back to his men so that they may have something to eat. And so they ate this holy bread, this bread of the presence, this bread that, was, that it was only lawful for priests to eat. And David and his men were not priests. Now, the point that Jesus is making here is a point that the Pharisees would have understood. The Pharisees would have understood that David was not just an ordinary man. 
I'm quite sure if anybody else would have come in to ask for bread, they would have not been given the bread of the presence. But David, as just stated, was not an ordinary man. David was the Lord's anointed one. And David and his men were on a special mission. And thus, although the ceremonial law said that only priests may eat the bread of the presence, in this case, it was right that David and his men would have their needs supplied by this holy bread. And so as we think about what Jesus is saying in Mark 2, verses 25 and 26, we understand that what Jesus is doing here is not simply arguing for his disciples' right to eat grain on the Sabbath day. He could have done that from uh, Exodus 34. But no, Jesus takes it a step further. His argument is that just as David was the anointed one of God, so too he is the anointed one of God. He is making the claim to the Pharisees that he is the son of David, that offspring of David that is prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we know as the Davidic covenant. He is making the claim to the Pharisees that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one, the one who has come to sit on the throne as the king of the kingdom. And so once again, as Jesus has been doing in all of his controversies with the Pharisees, he is driving home the point that he is not an ordinary man, but rather he truly is the Son of God. Now, with this in mind, let us move into the second part of Jesus' response, which is recorded for us in verses 27 and 28. Let's read those verses once more. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, here in these verses, we have one of the strongest statements from Christ concerning his divine nature. And in addition to this, we have Jesus rebuking the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the law of God, while at the same time teaching us some very important truths concerning his law and how we are to keep it. Let's deal first with the statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here Jesus takes aim directly at the Pharisees' misunderstanding and misapplication of this good law of God. This statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, has a similar arrangement to what we see in Paul's argument in, in 1 Corinthians 11 about the proper roles of men and women in the church. You remember what Paul says. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so in that passage, Paul goes back to the creational order to make his point. Man was created first and then the woman. Well, we see Jesus employing the same method here to make his point. He does this not by going to, back to Mount Sinai to the law as, as it was given in the Old Covenant, but rather Jesus takes the Pharisees all the way back to the beginning. He takes them back to creation. Jesus is going back to the creational order to give a proper understanding of the Sabbath day. Now, think back, back with me, if you would, to creation. On what day was man created? Man was created on the sixth day of the week. Now, what follows the sixth day of the week? The seventh day of the week. We read in Genesis 2 the following. And on the seventh day, 
God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so we see the point that Jesus is making. Man was created before the Sabbath day was created. Therefore, the Sabbath was created for man and not man created for the Sabbath. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. The Sabbath was created to be a good gift that served the well-being of mankind. And we could even say that the Sabbath was created to serve the well-being of creation in general. Jesus is saying it doesn't make any sense to approach the Sabbath day as something that must be served by mankind. And so the Sabbath was created to be a blessing and not a burden. It's a gift that God has given for our good. But the Pharisees, as we saw last week, were masters of taking what had been given for the good of his people and completely turning it upside down. The Sabbath was something that the people of God were to delight in. It was to be the highlight of their week. But the Pharisees had created a, a superstructure of additional laws on top of the Sabbath day and have effectively, effectively turned the Sabbath into a nightmare for the Jews. In fact, as a result of the Pharisees' continuous adding to the law, they helped create some 39 different categories of forbidden activities that could not be engaged in on the Sabbath day. Here are just a few to give you an idea of just how far they distorted the blessing of the Sabbath day. They taught that <clears throat> you should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, which would be considered reaping. They said that you can only eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking. If your candle went out, you could not relight it. So if it was dark, too bad. You can't relight the candle. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath since this might be construed as carrying a burden. You were allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them into salt because you might leave them in there too long so as that you might pickle the radishes. And this was considered Sabbath breaking. The Pharisees actually had long discussions on how long it took to pickle a radish. If a woman got mud on her dress, she had to wait until it had dried, and then she was permitted to crumple the dress one time and then shake it out one time, and that was it. That's all she could do. She couldn't get all the mud off. She had to, the rest of the day, she had to wear the mud. They taught, they taught that it was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the dirt because that made mud, and mud could be used as mortar, and that was considered working. Now, if you could imagine... The restrictions surrounding the Sabbath day have only gotten more oppressive as time has gone on. Now, we don't have time to go into this in detail, but I'll just give one random example in modern-day Judaism. One of the categories that was forbidden was erasing. That means that you could not deconstruct a written word that was considered Sabbath-breaking. 
Now, one way that has been applied in modern-day Judaism is that if you were to tear a package open to get some food out of a package, you can do that as long as you don't tear through a word. If you tear through a word on the package, you've broken the Sabbath because you have committed the sin of erasing on the Sabbath day. And so, as you can clearly see, what the Pharisees had done was that they buried the Sabbath day under so many ridiculous man-made laws that the purpose of the Sabbath day had been lost. And so that leads us to an important question. What is required to keep the Sabbath? Well, this could be an entire sermon, so I'm going to summarize it a lot. Jesus was once asked, what was the greatest law? His response was, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second was likened to it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So how do you keep the Sabbath? First, you recognize that it is a gift given by God for your good. And how is it meant for your good? It is meant to be for your good in that this is a special day to commune with your God by receiving from Him the blessings that come through the ordinary means of grace as those means of grace point you to Christ. Secondly, it is meant for your good as as it is a time to rest from your own pursuits. And it is meant for the good of mankind as it is a day that they set aside... um, they set aside for the purpose of doing good or, or of going about doing good for our fellow man. So in other words, you set aside this day not to do your own pursuits, but this day is to be set aside so you can go about doing good to your fellow man. That's how you, so on the first hand, it's a day to commune with God, to love the Lord your God. And secondly, it's a day to do good to your fellow man, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you keep the Sabbath. It's not really all that complicated. Now, the Sabbath, which has been changed in the New Covenant to the first day of the week, is a day set aside for us to love our God by communing with Him in public and private worship. And secondly, it is a day set aside for us to love our neighbor, to do good unto all men and especially unto the household of faith. That's the spirit of the law of the Sabbath. That's the spirit of the fourth commandment. If you miss that, you've missed the Sabbath. No matter what you do on the Sabbath, if it does not proceed from a heart of love, it's worthless. Matthew's account of this event in Matthew 12, verse 7, adds a detail here that I think is very helpful. There Jesus tells the Pharisees, And if you had not known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus is making the point that the only proper way to keep the law It's from a heart of love towards God and to your fellow man. This statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is a quotation from from Hosea 6.6, which states, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. We're not called to show mercy towards God, but we are called to show steadfast love to our God and steadfast love to our neighbor, which often presents itself as showing mercy to our neighbor. Let's move now to the second part of our Lord's response to the Pharisees' accusation. 
Jesus says in verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. As I stated earlier, this is one of the clearest statements from our Lord regarding His divine nature. Jesus has already appealed to the fact that the Sabbath is rooted in creation. And so His statement that He, the Son of Man, the Son of David, is the Lord of the Sabbath is Jesus saying loud and clear that the God who blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy is standing before the very eyes of the Pharisees. That's what's being said here. Brothers and sisters, when we read texts like this, we should understand like Moses that we are standing on holy ground. There's a lot going on in this statement, but the main point that you must understand from this passage is that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And remember, this is the main point of the Gospel of Mark. The whole point of reading this Gospel, the whole point of preaching through this Gospel, is that you would see that this man named Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that you would be convinced of this, and that you would believe upon Him, and that in believing on Him, you would have eternal life. That's the point of this whole book. No matter what else you get out of today, you must understand that Jesus is the Lord, Yes, even the Lord of the Sabbath. Secondly, what we have going on here is a transition in redemptive history. And this next section is a little bit more technical, but please stay with me. One of the things that is important for you to learn regarding the study of the Bible is that protology points or presupposes eschatology, points to or presupposes eschatology. And eschatology resembles protology. Now, I know that those are big words, but what they mean is simply this. Protology is the study of first things, namely creation. Whereas eschatology is the study of last things. And so as you trace the redemptive historical narrative of the Bible, what you will notice is that creation has an end goal. Creation is not an end in and of itself. It doesn't terminate on itself. But rather, creation is moving forward to a consummation. And that consummation is known as the new creation. And so what this means in part regarding the Sabbath is this. The Sabbath, as a creation ordinance, was and is a time of blessing and rest for the people of God. Now, because the Sabbath as a one day and seven rest is part of the current created order, we can assume that this one day and seven pattern will pass away with the current created order. But remember, eschatology resembles protology. The new creation resembles the first creation. The Sabbath rest in the current created order is topological of the future rest of all believers in the new heavens and the new earth. Francis Turretin describes the Sabbath in the following way. He says, It is a type of the eternal Sabbath to be spent in heaven in which the saints, happy in soul and body, will rest in God from the sins, calamities, and miseries of this life. And isn't that a, a beautiful thing to look forward to? Now, what does this have to do with the first advent of Christ, and his statement that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
Well, what Jesus is saying is this. You've got creation, and you've got new creation. You've got a one day and seven rest, and you've got an eternal rest. But is there anything that happens between creation and new creation? Yes. What comes in between these two momentous occasions in redemptive history is the first advent of Christ, the first coming of the Lord. And we've already in the past few weeks stated that during the first coming of the Lord, He is ushering in the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven. And further, during this first advent of Christ, the old covenant is passing away and the new covenant is being established. But in addition to this, or we could say as a part of what is taking place in the first advent of Christ, is that Jesus, the Lord, is inaugurating the new creation. And so what we have is this. There's creation, and there's new creation, and there's an overlapping of the two. And thus, in a very real way, we can say that we are already in the new creation, but not yet in the new creation. We still exist in the original created order, and thus the original creation ordinances still apply to us today. And so we are still to observe a one day and seven Sabbath rest. But with the first advent of our Lord, the Sabbath rest has been changed from the seventh day to the first day. Why? Because it was on the first day of the week that our Lord was resurrected. And what does the resurrection of our Lord point to and guarantee? It points to and guarantees that there is coming a day when all men will be resurrected, the wicked unto eternal judgment, but the righteous, those who are united to Christ by faith, they will be resurrected and enter into that eternal Sabbath rest in the consummated new creation. And so when Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is declaring that he is the Lord of the Sabbath of creation. But he is also saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath of the new creation. And so, brothers and sisters, as we have gathered on this Sabbath day, may our eyes be directed forward to that, that coming eternal Sabbath. And may we understand that the only way that we can enter into that Sabbath rest is through coming to the Lord of the Sabbath by faith. If you would enter into that, into that eternal Sabbath, you must be united to Christ by faith. That's the only way to enter into that rest. Well, we have completed our exposition of our first passage this morning. And now in our second hour, we will begin our exposition of the second passage in Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. Amen. No, I'm kidding. We will not have time to do a verse-by-verse exposition of Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, and thus do justice to, justice to all that is in that passage. But I would like to read this passage once more and make one brief point before we conclude this morning. Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, that is the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And of course the answer there is obvious. Yes, it is lawful to do good and to save life. 
But the Pharisees would not answer. It says, but they were silent. And he, that is Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Well, as we bring this sermon to a close, I want to point your attention to two simple truths. First, Paul, in his epistle to the Galatians, made the following point in Galatians 5. In verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is making the point in this passage. Would you be a Sabbath keeper? then you must love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's required to be a Sabbath keeper. When you got ready for church this morning, did you think, well, my presence this morning with the gathered body of believers, is that an act of love to them? Did you even consider other people this morning as you, as you prepared for the Sabbath day? To keep the Sabbath holy, to keep it rightly, you must approach this day with a heart of love towards your fellow man. And so when we gather together, you should be coming together, yes, to meet with the Lord, to love the Lord, but also we must be coming to meet with our neighbors and to love our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But in Galatians 5, Paul also makes another point in verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. At the end of Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, we see that Jesus so angered the Pharisees that they began their plot to have Jesus killed. See, brothers and sisters, we must not look past that detail in our account today because it was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Because ultimately, salvation does not come to man through his ability to keep the law. Should we keep the Sabbath? Absolutely we should. But dear ones, every single person in this room has broken the Sabbath at one time or another. We cannot, we cannot put our hope in our ability to keep the Sabbath or the law or any of the law. But rather, we are to put our hope in the Lord of the Sabbath, who always kept the Sabbath day holy in our place. But not only did he do that, in the fullness of time, our Lord was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, these same men who were angry with him in Mark 3. And this happened so that all who would trust in him could receive the gift of salvation, and, that on the, and on that appointed day, be welcomed in, welcomed in to enjoy the eternal Sabbath rest. And so if you would enter into that eternal Sabbath rest, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law in our place, and the one who suffered and bled and died in our place. Let's pray. Holy Father, we have once again been blessed by your word as it has pointed us to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He truly is the Son of God. He truly is the Christ. 
And he truly is the only one that we can come to for salvation. So my prayer is that everyone in this room this morning would, would not put their trust in their own ability to keep the law, but they would trust in Christ and him alone, understanding that he is able and willing to save all sinners who come to him. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. For this time, if you would, please stand.